0: Boy, goodbye school. During my last year at Repton, my mother said to me, would you like to go to Oxford or Cambridge when you leave school? In those days, it was not difficult to get into either of these great universities, so long as you could pay. No, thank you, I said. I want to go straight from school to work for a company that will send me to wonderful faraway places like Africa or China. You must remember that there was virtually no air travel in the early 1930s. Africa was two weeks away from England by boat, and it took you about five weeks to get to China. These were distant and magic lands, and nobody went to them just for a holiday. You went there to work. Nowadays, you can go anywhere in the world in a few hours, and nothing is fabulous anymore. But it was a very different matter in 1934. So during my last term, I applied for a job only to those companies that would be sure to send me abroad. They were the Shell Company, Eastern Staff, Imperial Chemicals, Eastern Staff, and a Finnish lumber company, whose name I have forgotten. I was accepted by Imperial Chemicals and by the Finnish Lumber Company, but for some reason I wanted most of all to get into the Shell Company. When the day came for me to go up to London for this interview, my housemaster told me it was ridiculous for me to even try. "'The eastern staff of Shell are the creme de la creme,' he said. "'There will be at least one hundred applicants in about five vacancies. "'Nobody has a hope unless he's been head of the school or head of the house, "'and you aren't even a house prefect.' my housemaster was right about the applicants. There were 107 boys waiting to be interviewed when I arrived at the head office of the Shell Company in London, and there were seven places to be filled. Please don't ask me how I got one of those places. I don't know myself, but get it, I did, and when I told my housemaster the good news on my return to school, he didn't congratulate me or shake me warmly by the hand. He turned away, muttering, all I can say is I'm damned glad I don't own any shares in Shell. I didn't care any longer what my housemaster thought. I was all set. I had a career. It was lovely. I was to leave school forever in July 1934 and join the Shell Company two months later in September when I would be exactly 18. I was to be an Eastern staff trainee at a salary of five pounds a week. That summer, for the first time in my life, I did not accompany the family to Norway. I somehow felt the need for a special kind of last fling before I became a businessman. So while still at school during my last term, I signed up to spend August with something called the Public Schools Exploring Society. The leader of this outfit was a man who had gone with a Captain Scott on his last expedition to the South Pole, and he was taking a party of senior schoolboys to explore the interior of New Finland during the summer holidays. It sounded like fun. Without the slightest regret, I said goodbye to Repton forever and rode back to Kent on my motorbike. This splendid machine was a 500cc Ariel, which I had bought that the year before for 18 pounds, and during my last term at Repton, I kept it secretly in a garage along the Wellington Wilming- Road about two miles away. On Sundays, I used to walk to the garage and disguise myself in helmet, goggles, old raincoat, and rubber waders, and ride all over Derbyshire. It was fun to go roaring through Repton itself with nobody knowing who you were, swishing past the masters walking in the street and circling around the dangerous supercilious school bosers out of their Sunday strolls. I trembled to think what would have happened to me had I been caught but I wasn't caught so on the last day of term I zoomed joyfully away and left school behind me forever and ever. I was not quite 18. I had only two days at home before I was off to Newfoundland with the public schools explorers. Our ship sailed from Liverpool at the beginning of August and took six days to reach St. John's. There were about 30 boys of my own age at the expedition, as well as four experienced adult leaders. But Newfoundland, as I soon found out, was not much of a country. For three weeks, we trudged all over that desolate land with enormous loads on our backs. We carried tents and ground sheets and sleeping bags and saucepans and foods and axes and everything else one needs in the interior of an unmapped, uninhabitable, and unhospitable country. My own load, I know, weighed exactly 114 pounds and someone else always had to help me hoist the rucksack onto my back in the mornings. We lived on pemmican and lentils, and the twelve of us who went separately on what was called the long march from the north to the south of the island and back again suffered a good deal from lack of food. I can remember very clearly how we experimented with eating boiled lichen and reindeer moss to supplement our diet, but it was a genuine adventure, and I returned home hard and fit and ready for anything. There followed two years of intensive training with a shell company in England. We were seven trainees in that year's group and each one of us was being carefully prepared to uphold the majesty of the shell company in one or another remote tropical country. We spent weeks at the huge shell Haven refinery with a special instructor who taught us all about fuel oil and diesel oil and gas oil and lubricating oil and kerosene and gasoline. After that we spent months at the head office in London learning how the great company functioned from the inside I was still living in Bexley Kent with my mother and three sisters and every morning six days a week Saturdays included I would dress neatly in a somber grey suit have breakfast at 7:45 and then with a brown trilby on my head and furled umbrella in my umbrella in my hand I would board the 8:15 train to London together with a swarm of other equally somber suited businessmen I found it easy to fall into their pattern we were all very serious and dignified gents taking the train to our offices in the city of London, where each of us, so we thought, was engaged in high finance and other enormously important matters. Most of my companions wore hard bowler hats, and a few, like me, wore soft trilbies. But not one of us on that train in the year of 1934 went bareheaded. It wasn't done, and none of us, even on the sunniest days, went without his furled umbrella. The umbrella was our badge of office. We felt naked without it. Also, it was a sign of respectability. Road menders and plumbers never went to work with umbrellas. Businessmen did. I enjoyed it. I really did. I began to realize how simple life could be if one had a regular routine to follow with fixed hours and a fixed salary and very little original thinking to do. The life of a writer is absolute hell compared with the life of a businessman. The writer has to force himself to work. He has to make his own hours, and if he doesn't go to his desk at all, there is nobody to scold him. If he is a writer of fiction, he lives in a world of fear. Each new day demands new ideas, and he can never be sure whether he is going to come up with them or not. Two hours of writing fiction leaves this particular writer absolutely drained. For those two hours, he has been miles away. He has been somewhere else in a different place with totally different people, and the effort of swimming back into normal surroundings is very great. It's almost a shock. The writer walks out of his workroom in a daze. He wants a drink. He needs it. It happens to be a fact that nearly every writer of fiction in the world drinks more whiskey than is good for him. He does it to give himself faith, hope, and courage. A person is a fool to become a writer. His only compensation is absolute freedom. He has no master except his own soul, and that, I am sure, is why he does it. The Shell Company did us proud. After twelve months at head office, we trainees were all sent away to various Shell branches in England to study salesmanship. I went to Somerset and spent several glorious weeks selling kerosene to old ladies in remote villages. My kerosene motor tank had a tap at the back when I rolled into Shepton Mallet, or Midsummer Norton, or Peasden St. John, or Hinton Blewett, or Temple Cloud, or Chew Magna, or Hoosh Shemflower. The old girls and the young maidens would hear the roar of my motor and would come out of their cottages with jugs and buckets to buy a gallon of kerosene for their lamps and their heaters. It is fun for a young man to do that sort of thing. Nobody gets a nervous breakdown or a heart attack from selling kerosene to gentle country folk from the back of a tanker in Somerset on a fine summer's day. Then suddenly, in 1936, I was summoned back to head office in London. One of the directors wished to see me. "'We're sending you to Egypt,' he said. "'It will be a three-year tour, then six months' leave. Be ready to go in one week's time.' "'Oh, but sir,' I cried out, "'not Egypt. I really don't want to go to Egypt.' The great man reeled back in his chair as though I had slapped him in the face with a plate of poached eggs. Egypt, he said slowly, is one of our finest and most important areas. We are doing you a favor in sending you there instead of to some mosquito-ridden place in the swamps. I kept silent. May I ask why you do not wish to go to Egypt, he said. I knew perfectly well why, but I didn't know how to put it. What I wanted was jungles and lions and elephants and tall coconut palms swaying on silvery beaches, and Egypt had none of these. Egypt was desert country. It was bare and sandy and full of tombs and relics and Egyptians, and I didn't fancy it at all. What is wrong with Egypt? The director asked me again. It's. it's. it's, I stammered. It's too dusty, sir. The man stared at me. Too what? he cried. Dusty, I said. Dusty? he shouted. Too dusty? I've never heard such rubbish. There was a long silence. I was expecting him to tell me to fetch my hat and coat and leave the building forever. But he didn't do that. He was an awfully nice man, and his name was Mr. Godber. He gave a deep sigh and rubbed a hand over his eyes and said, Very well, then, if that's the way you want it, Redfern will go to Egypt instead of you, and you will have to take the next posting that comes up, dusty or not. Do you understand? Yes, sir, I realize that. If the next vacancy happens to be Siberia, he said, you'll have to take it. I quite understand, sir, I said, and thank you very much. Within a week, Mr. Godfrey summoned me me again to his office. You're going to East Africa, he said. Hooray, I shouted, jumping up and down. That's marvelous, sir. That's wonderful. How terrific. The great man smiled. It's quite dusty there, too, he said. Lions, I cried, and elephants and giraffes and coconuts everywhere. Your boat leaves from London docks in six days, he said. You'll get off at Mombasa, Your salary will be £500 per annum and your chores for three years. I was twenty years old. I was off to East Africa where I would walk about in khaki shorts every day and wear a topi on my head. I was ecstatic. I rushed home and told my mother, and I'll be gone for three years, I said. I was your only son and we were very close. Most mothers faced with a situation like this would have shown a certain amount of distress. Three years is a long time and Africa was far away. There would be no visits in between, but my mother did not allow even the tiniest bit of what she must have felt to disturb my joy. Oh, well done you, she cried. It's wonderful news, and it's just where you wanted to go, isn't it? The whole family came down to London docks to see me off on the boat. It was a tremendous thing in those days for a young man to be going off to Africa to work. The journey alone would take two weeks, sailing through the Bay of Biscay, past Gibraltar, across the Mediterranean, through the Suez Canal and the Red Sea, calling in at Aden and arriving finally at Mabasa. What prospect that was! I was off to the land of palm trees and coconuts and coral reefs and lions and elephants and deadly snakes, and a white hunter who had lived ten years in Wanza had told me that if a black mamba bit you, you died within the hour writhing in agony and foaming at the mouth. I couldn't wait. Although I didn't know it at the time, I was sailing away for a good deal longer than three years because of the Second World War was to come along in the middle of it. But before that happened, I got my African adventure all right. I got the roasting heat and the crocodiles and the snakes and the long safaris up country selling shell oil to the men who ran the diamond mines and the sisal plantations. I learned about the extraordinary machine called the dec- Decorticator, a name I have always loved, which shredded the big leathery sisal leaves into fiber. I learned to speak Swahili and to shake the scorpions out of my mosquito boots in the morning. I learned that it was like to, what it was like to get malaria and to run a temperature of 105 degrees Fahrenheit for three days, and when the rainy season came and the water poured down in solid sheets and flooded the little dirt roads, I learned how to spend nights in the back of a stifling station wagon with all the windows closed against the marauders from the jungle. Above all, I learned how to look after myself in a way that no young person can ever do by staying in civilization. When the big war broke out in 1939, I was in Dar es Salaam, and from there I went up to Nairobi to join the RAF. Six months later, I was a fighter pilot, flying hurricanes all around the Mediterranean. I flew in the western desert of Libya, in Greece, in Palestine, in Syria, in Iraq, and in Egypt. I shot down some German planes, and I shot down myself, crashing in a burst of flames and crawling out, getting rescued by brave soldiers crawling on their bellies over the sand. I spent six months in hospital in Alexandria, and when I came out, I flew again. But all that is another story. It has nothing to do with childhood or school or gobstoppers or dead mice or bosers or summer holidays among the islands of Norway. It is a different tale altogether, and if all goes well, I may have a shot at telling it one of these days. Love from Boy